if you if you have your Bible and you want to grab it and go to Second Kings, um, we're we're just gonna finish up their role because this series actually started. Um, uh, Noel is actually responsible for this series, and I know she's been dying for me to actually get to the thing she asked me about. Um, is it, Noel? Are you are you out there? You're still out there somewhere, David Noel. She there, Ariel? Do you see her? Are they hiding? Oh well. Um, so um, Noel had asked me about Elijah and Elisha and and the old and the New Testament. Why? Um, why? Uh, oh, there they are. They popped in and they disappeared. Anyway. Um, she had asked me about Elijah and Elisha, which started me on this whole 13-week series. And um, there they are. Right, Noel? That was you that asked me that question, right? Yeah. <laughs> She's still waiting for I, me to I, answer. I, yeah, why, why Elijah was so important. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And then, like, I, I, I thought they might be a foreshadow. So, so this is this is the the end of that. We want to talk about why Elijah um, is appears in the New Testament. So we're going to look at a couple of, of things and kind of the connection and where it comes from. So uh, let's go ahead and pray real quick, and then we're going to dig into we're going to dig into Second Kings, a little bit of Malachi, and uh, the Gospel uh, of Luke real quick. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word and gathering together as a body. And Lord, we ask that you would um, continue your spirit's work of, of bringing us together in all of this as we look to your scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, 2 Kings and chapter 9 um, I, I've already talked a little bit about chapter 8 and Elisha anointing Hazael, um, the king of uh, Aram, uh, and that Hazael is um, a pretty intimidating person. And Elisha says to him, oh, when Elisha anoints him, he actually cries. And in chapter 8 and verse 12, Hazael asks him why he is weeping. And he says, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword, dash in pieces their little ones, and rip, rip open their pregnant women. So, uh, so he's he's very um, torn up about appointing this guy who is a murderer and uh, an enemy as king of Aram, the kingdom north of Israel. But in chapter nine, um, Elisha sends one of his servants to anoint another guy, Yahu. Um, to be king of Israel. And, and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a little bit. But uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, and verse 1, Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said, Tie up your garments, take this flask of oil in your hand, go to Ramoth-Gilead, and when you arrive, look there for Yehu the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Go in, have him rise from among his fellows, lead him to an inner chamber, take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Um, and so this, this son of the prophets, this servant, he goes, 
he finds Yehu, who, who is one of the generals in the Israelite army, is one of the superior commanders. And he's in a council of war. He asks the guy to join him in a room. He anoints him as king. Yehu comes back into the room, and all the other generals want to know why uh, this prophet wanted to see him. Yehu won't tell them. Then he tells them that he's been anointed king. And when he tells them that, everybody stands up and they, and they celebrate this. Um, and they, they, they celebrate that he is king. And then Yehu immediately rides off um, and hunts down, uh, uh, hunts down Jehoram, or Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and he shoots both of them and kills them. Um, and you go, okay, still trying to figure out what this has to do with the New Testament. It'll make sense in a second. Then he rides to, uh, rides to um, Jezreel, and they have Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, thrown out of a window, and he drives over her with his chariot. So this is one of those beautiful, loving moments in the Bible. This is, this is one of the more colorful stories. Um, then he goes from there and then slaughters every other descendant of Ahab, um, every member of Ahab's family in chapter 10. Um, and just when you thought it could get crazier, um, then he, in chapter, at the end of chapter 10, um, there's this line, chapter 10 and verse 18, Yehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Yehu will serve him much. Call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Yehu did this with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Yehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Yehu went through all Israel. All the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left. They entered the house of Baal. The house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And he said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments. So they brought out the vestments. And Yehu went into the house of Baal with Yohanadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Yehu stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hand to escape shall forfeit his life. And as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt sacrifice, burnt offering, Yehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in, strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out, went into the inner room of the house of Baal. They brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal, burned it. They demolished the pillar of Baal, demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. So uh, Yehu is a gentle, loving soul. He's a kind, compassionate person. Um, he is, he's the king that Israel needs at this point. Uh, if you want to think about a, a parallel that I think we can all understand, um, Yehu is the chemotherapy to destroy the cancer. Um, it, chemotherapy is poison. I don't know if everybody realizes this, but that's what they use in chemotherapy. It's a mixture of toxic chemicals and it's always a, a different variation of, of chemicals depending on the type of cancer. That's entire purpose is to poison and kill the cancer because cancer is basically your body turning on itself. And that's a nasty thing for us to think about. 
But Yehu is a nasty man who's doing a necessary surgery to the kingdom of Israel. He's destroying something that is evil. And in order to do that, he has to be um, pretty crazy. I mean, this is not the kind of guy that I would sit there and go, I want to have coffee with this guy. Um, he, he's, a, he's, he's a soldier. He's a warrior. He does what's required. And he wipes Baal out from Israel. Um, so, And then the end of chapter 10 kind of gives us a conclusion in his life. It says, Thus Yehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Yehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Don. And the Lord said to Yehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Yehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And then it describes what happened to him, and then he dies. Um, what does this have to do with the New Testament? Well, uh, in, in the, the New Testament, um, we read a line about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. And the line is this. It's speaking about John the Baptist, and it says in verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Um, and this is actually a reference back to the book of Malachi, and you don't really need to look there, but you can if you want. Malachi chapter 4, um, Malachi says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's actually the last line of the Old Testament um, in, our, in our Bibles. Um, what happened in Israel was that they developed this understanding that if Messiah were to come, and they draw it out of, of Malachi, if Messiah were to come, um, it would be like the coming of Yehu. Um, now, they were wrong in the nature of the Messiah's ministry. But if you think about the way that the disciples are always talking to Jesus about, will, if, is he going to overthrow the Romans? Are you going to do this thing? They're, they're constantly asking him, if he's going to do this kind of violent overtake of Israel and reestablish the kingdom. They think that Messiah is going to be a king like Yahu. They think that, that in order for Messiah to truly be effective, he's got to come and wipe out the Romans and destroy the, the powers of the world that are ruling over them because they see themselves in the place of the faithful 
during the time of the rule of kings like Ahab and Jehoram. They see themselves being oppressed by people who don't worship the true God, people who are allied with um, Gentiles and foreigners. They see themselves in that category. And so they read Malachi, and Malachi says that, that um, Elijah is going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And they think great and awesome means destruction and rule and this whole new thing. And when God says, when the angel says that John the Baptist would come in the spirit of Elijah, well, that kind of sounds like that would be a confirmation, right? But, um, and there's a lot going on. There is this sense of the day of the Lord is judgment at the end of, of, of time. But the reality was, the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of Elijah and Elisha was never about the judgment that had to come. Because when you go back and you read over all the trouble that Elijah and Elisha cause for all the people, uh, for the kings, what are they constantly doing? They're constantly saying, repent, turn back, stop this behavior, don't you, this destruction that's coming can be avoided just by coming to faith, just by accepting the God that you claim to worship. And that's the spirit of Elijah when we look at Christ. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And, um, you know, how does that fit with Elisha? Well, if you read back in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha receives the spirit of Elijah. So he's basically just an extension of Elisha, Elijah. Um, the idea is this forerunner before the awesome day of the Lord. But just like so many things in the Old Testament, the, the, the thing that happens in the New Testament is the inverse of the thing that happens in the Old Testament. I'm not sure if I can explain this really well um, in the vacuum of talking to myself. But um, so often in the Old Testament, you get a prophet and he prophesies judgment and then the judgment comes. And the judgment comes because the prophecy is to sinful people who choose to remain sinful. And so the spirit of Elijah in the Old Testament is prophecy to people that refuse to change and so they're punished. But in the New Testament, the prophecy of John that foreshadows Jesus brings us to a place where change does occur, and as a result, judgment is poured out on Christ rather than on us, and so we become recipients of grace rather than recipients of judgment. Because the earthly kings... Ahab, Yehu, all of those, they could never be a true savior. So Elijah calls people to faithfulness, but they refuse to turn. And then the spirit of Elijah in John calls people to faithfulness. And because the king that John calls us to is Jesus, Jesus calls and we hear, and he becomes our atonement and we are saved through him. I'm not sure if I'm explaining this very well. Um, like I said, it's tough for me to talk in a vacuum. Um,
But the idea is the situation is the same. The spirit of Elijah enters into the same situation. And the situation is a people oppressed by the world, by, by false gods, by false kings, by all these things. The spirit of Elijah speaks into that situation. But now that we have Christ, the salvation that comes out of that situation is complete. Whereas the salvation of somebody like Yehu was just temporary and it was broken and it was incomplete. And, and he's, not, he's not a good king. He's a necessary king. He's chemotherapy, which is sort of a treatment and sort of a cure, but not really. But when we look at the spirit of Elijah and John calling us to Jesus, the treatment, the healing is perfect in him. What was imperfect in the Old Testament is perfected in him, in Christ. And so what we look at as the spirit of Elijah is God speaking into the darkness. But what we see in Christ is God rather than a partial salvation, a full salvation in Christ. And um, I feel like I'm, I'm losing the point, so I don't want to get too, 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 too lost in trying to kind of re-explain and, and, and rebalance. But what's important about all of this is to remember that the purpose of the troublesome prophets, that spirit of Elijah, is to call us is to call us to a salvation that we cannot obtain on our own. It's to call us to a God who is transcendent. And for Christians living after the coming of Christ, it's to call us to a salvation and a life and a journey that has been completed in him. And that is an extraordinary gift, an extraordinary blessing, extraordinary situation. Um, so I feel like I did a really terrible job on that explanation. So I want to take a couple minutes and ask you guys if, if, um, for thoughts, comments, questions about this, and then maybe we'll take this offline. We'll have Lord's table and we'll, we'll close our worship service. Um, so, uh, so let's do that. So thoughts, ideas, questions, comments, um, if you, you have one and you thought you want to throw it out there, uh, I know that this is this is kind of a weird format. Um, and uh, so. If no one has anyone, anything, or you just need to process a little bit and maybe talk about it later, which is, um, we can do that too. Okay, so nobody's unmuting, so we're going to go ahead and... All right, Brian, why did Jesus say John is Elijah if you can't accept it? That is a great aspect of this. Because, I mean, what what is the response to Elijah and Elisha um, in First and Second Kings? It's constantly rejection. It's constantly misunderstanding. Um, and so when Jesus says to them, John is Elijah, if you can accept it, he says, 
if you're willing to take the step, if you're willing to believe the message, which is what, you know, if we're, you're willing to accept Christ as salvation, then he is Elijah. But if you refuse, you know, then what that hope you're looking for is missing. It's, it's, he, so a lot, John doesn't give you any hope if you're not willing to accept the hope that John is giving you, um, I guess would be the way I would kind of say it off the top of my head. Um, and, and, and in a sense, it's very true. I mean, I mean, Christ, um, Christ is hope for those who find hope in him. But if our, if our hope in Christ is like some denominations teach that, that he just, he's just a good teacher. And if we just follow his teachings, we'll be better. That's not really any hope. That's just, I mean, that, that's no different than any other kind of self-help guru. But if we truly see him as he is in the scriptures, then the hope is that he is the son of God, the savior of the world, um, the propitiation of, this, of all our sins. So we have to accept that to be true um, in, in order for it to truly give us hope. If we just simply say, yeah, you know, I follow Jesus because he's cool, that, that's not really hope. That's just fad, I guess, opinion. 